Hey everyone, it's Emma John. I wanted to tell you about another show from the BGS Podcast Network that you might be interested in. It's called Toy Heart, and on every episode, Tom Power from CBC Radio Q in Canada sits down with a bluegrass living legend and listens to their in-depth stories. So far, Tom's spoken with Del McCurry, Alice Gerard, Bela Fleck, Alison Brown, Jesse McReynolds, and here in a conversation with Ricky Skaggs. Ricky sat down to talk about what it was like to grow up as a child prodigy and to tell him the real story of how he got pulled on stage by Bill Monroe. He also talks with Tom about how Keith Whitley changed his life forever and a never-before-told story of how Bill Monroe thought Ricky would make a fine bluegrass boy. So without further ado, here's the episode in its entirety. And there's plenty more where this came from, so just search for Toy Heart wherever you get your podcasts or subscribe over at the bluegrasssituation.com's podcast page. Hey, and welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. I'm Tom Power. Thank you so much for all the great feedback to our first episode with Del McCurry. Lots of really great comments online and in forums and on Reddit. Um, We're really excited about this. And after spending a year making it in sort of dark, lonely rooms, it's nice to see that people are actually listening to it and responding to it. So if you haven't already, uh, rate the podcast, uh, subscribe to it, like it, I mean, whatever you can do. And most importantly, tell your buddies about it. Any of your friends who are into bluegrass or old time music or or roots music in general, um, or just the history of Western, like American music, I think think they'll dig it. So make sure to let them know about it. But let's let's move on to our second episode, which is with Ricky Skaggs. Uh, Ricky Skaggs is a legend of, of bluegrass music. Um, like Del McCurry, he's a way that a lot of people get into this music because of his uh, turn at one point to country music. And that's something we talk about. We talk about what happens to your role in bluegrass music when you turn away to country music. He doesn't see it that way. Neither do I. I think when he went to country, he did a lot of songs by Flat and Scruggs and had Bill Monroe in his music videos. But he, you know, we have a lot to say about that. We also talk about being a child prodigy um, and the pressure that comes with that and how that changes your life. He was a you know a, a child prodigy. We talk about his uh, life with a fellow child prodigy, the great Keith Whitley, who passed away at a very, very young age. We talk about his work with the Stanley Brothers. We talk about this amazing story about how he almost played with Bill Monroe that he uh, has never told before. So we're going to get into that a little bit. His work with J.D. Crow, um, like I said, his, his move towards modern country music, why he returned back to bluegrass music and how he sees himself as an ambassador to the music right now. Um, I really feel like you rarely get to hear Ricky like this, and I'm grateful that we got to sit down in the control room in his studio in Nashville, Tennessee, and, and talk to him. But we start out sort of talking about cars. All right, here's Ricky Skaggs. Thanks for making the times beautiful here. Well, we're happy here. We like it here a lot. How long have uh, you, you been here? Uh, oh, gosh. 20 years probably I've had this uh, this studio. Um, we bought it from, well, we bought the, the building from the Oak Ridge Boys. They were growing out of it. Actually, actually they weren't growing out as more, more than they wanted to condense. This is a lot. You know, this, there's a room down here that Roy Orbison uh, used to own, and uh, he had a, this next building down here that, that our warehouse is in, and uh, he used to park cars in there. He, he loved, you know, race car or not race cars, but old, uh, old, old cars. 
had some old uh, uh, Lincolns, and he had a had a Cadillac, you know, that he'd had redone and everything. And but uh, anyway, so uh, I think you know it kind of feels good that we got a little bit of uh, history here in this yeah. building. You know, that's what still blows me away about coming down here. Is it all feels like as a fan of country music and as a fan of bluegrass music, it was all very Disneylandish to me. I, I like I think today because you know I don't want to take up all your day, and I want to make sure you you get to play some music today more than just talk about music. But what I'm kind of want to do is just kind of talk mainly about you and bluegrass kind of mm-hmm. as much as we possibly can today. And I'm, I'm curious about a couple of things. So a lot of things we're going to talk about are stuff you talk about in your book in Kentucky Traveler, mm-hmm. which I've read twice. Oh, goodness. Uh, once on the once on the plane down, <laughs> once a couple. It's good months. to reread it. I, I've got to reread it myself. I don't remember what all I said in there. And sometimes I, you know, when I talk about it on stage, I say, "I'm not sure that this story is in the book. It might be. It may not be. But if it's not, it should have been. You know. Right. Then I'll tell the story. But so I, I want to go back to that kind of legendary moment when it was you. You were like five years old when you played with Bill Monroe for the mm-hmm. first time. Yeah. And um, I feel weird saying Bill Monroe in front of you because I know you say Mr. Monroe. Oh, that's all right. That's okay. I understand right, that. good. That's, so, yeah. but I want to know, like, I know the story and I read the story, but it feels like almost like the story is always told in this sort of like uh, Aesop's fables kind of way, you know, <laughs> or like yeah. Excalibur was handed. Oh, but like, man. I don't remember a lot from when I was five years old. What do you actually remember from that night? Much of it was, uh, was told to, by my parents uh, to me. You know, we've looked and looked and looked forever. Uh, I know when, when the book, when we were working on the book, we were trying to find a, uh, someone that had a, a photograph from that night. Because as a little boy, I remember seeing flashes, you know, flashes of light. And uh, so, and I, my my cousin, uh, that she went with us almost everywhere, and she always took a little a brownie Hawkeye, a little, a little brownie camera, but I've I've talked talked to her family. We put an ad in the newspaper and the Ashland Daily, and and um, you know try to is there a, does anyone have a picture of Ricky Skaggs on stage with Bill Monroe, nineteen sixty? You know, yeah, Martha, Kentucky at the high school. And uh, till this day, we have not found one yet. But uh, who knows? You just you just never know when something will come up. You I, know, I love the idea of the consensus of the crowd, and I love that when you write about it in your book, it's not just that you know let little Ricky Skaggs play a little Rick, and that Bill would be like, well, of course, you know, no problem. Yeah. He, the way you write about it was he was a little reluctant off the top. You know? Yeah, yeah, and I think so. And and uh, you know, I probably would have been. Uh, you know, um, for. You know, if somebody said let little Ricky Skaggs, I mean, that, he didn't know how little I was until I walked up there, you know. <laughs> so he was only going on what some of the neighbors were shouting out. I mean, I was so I was so embarrassed that these people had had shout even spoke my name in his presence, mm. you know, um, that I just like slid under my seat. You know, I was just so shy. And uh, but, you know, they shouted out again after him doing another two or three songs. So, and that's what my dad said. So I, I'm sure that it, that it's true. But anyway, I come walking up, you know, he calls me up there and go walking up there and, and the stage, you know, literally it, it was a, it was an old high school and the stage was just not very tall off the, off the, the wooden basketball floor, you know, it was in the gym. And I mean, I, when I, with my little, you know, six year old bony frame, uh, I was about stage height or maybe even a little taller than stage height, you know? So he, he just reaches down and grabs me by the arm and pulls me up, you know, <laughs> that's why I tell people one of my arms is longer than the other. And, uh, still to this day, but, uh, 
you know, what was amazing is, you know, he asked me what I play, you know, and I told him I played the mandolin and he grinned real big and said, you know, is that right? You know, and uh, <laughs> so he had this big Gibson F5 mandolin. I mean, Excalibur. Yeah. You know? I, the first and, time uh, I came to Nashville was the first thing I went to see. Yeah. 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 And uh, so there's here's uh, King Arthur, you know, pulling that thing, you know off and he had a boot string you know like an old leather boot pair of leather boots hunting boots or barn boots or whatever you know that he had made a strap you know for his mandolin from and uh so he took it and kind of wrapped it around the curl part of the mandolin on the body to where it fit me you know and uh thank goodness the man knew you know uh ruby are you mad at your man Mm -hmm. It was a big hit at the time, I guess, from the Big Osborne's. hit. Uh, Osborne's had it. Oh, Ruby. Ruby. Honey, I ain't but uh, I had a I had the song "The Pinball Machine." Uh, by Lonnie, I uh, can't think of Lonnie's last name. He was a truck driving man, you know. I've lost all my friends. I can't sleep for bad dreams. I dream about an old truck and a pinball machine. And uh, so I knew that one, and I knew Ruby, you know. And my mom had already told me, don't sing that pinball song when you get up there, you know. And so half my repertoire was shot, so I only had one song, and I hoped that they knew it, you know. But they did, and away we went, you know. And um, I just know it was my first time to ever play with a band, mm. you know. It had been me and my dad, you know, for a year. Cause yeah. he, he bought me a mandolin in the fall of 1959. Yeah. I was five, and um, because I know it was wintertime, because he got snowed in in Lima, Ohio, and couldn't get home for a couple of weeks. And uh, when he got home, he'd shown me he'd shown me three chords before he left when, you know, when I first got the mandolin. And so when I came when he came home, I was I was singing, changing the chords, changing the chords and the, everything as I would sing, you know, and uh, it really, uh, really flipped him out. You know, so he went and bought a guitar that he used to have guitar and we, we'd let a family friend uh you know, use it. So yeah. we didn't have one. So dad went and bought one, you know, when, when did you, when did you realize then that you had sort of a natural aptitude for the instrument that maybe, maybe you weren't going to be like the other kids who were picking up mandolins. When did you realize that, Oh, hold on. Maybe I'm good at this. Well, melody started coming to me. You know, I was hearing, I was hearing the, those things in my head. And, uh, so I'd play, I'd play songs. I'd write write new songs. And when Dad would come home from work, you know, I'd show him, you know, a new song that I'd written, a new instrumental. It didn't have words, but it was a new instrumental, you know. And uh, I need to go through some of those tapes because they're here at the studio. Uh, my dad uh, kept all those things that he'd recorded from the time I was probably six years old on till. I don't know when he when he stopped, but uh, I need to go back and listen to some of those things. There may be some good ideas in there that yeah. that, that really could be, become good good instrumentals. But but I th- I think you know just being young um, and I knew 
none of the none of the other kids that I was going to school with could do anything like that musically. You know, they didn't, and uh, and I never really met kids till uh, that that could do that kind of stuff till I was probably. 14, 13 or 14, there's a few kids around the area. There's a banjo player named Jimmy Burchett. Uh, that was Elmer Burchett was the guy that played banjo with m- me and mom and dad uh, back, gosh, 1960, 61. I think I saw a photo of that in your yeah, book. I'm yeah, I'm standing by a, right. big, a big RCA he, microphone. Ernest Tub Record Shop, maybe? Yeah. Um, I think Elmer Burchett was playing on the uh, Midnight Jamboree. I had a cousin that was supposed to play but he ended up at the wagon wheel right. and, uh, and, and never never made it to the show. I like, but I'm so curious about the life of a child prodigy, which I think I, I can say that you were. Mm-hmm. Did you, your, so your dad kind of moves you guys to be closer to Nashville, to be mm-hmm. closer to the Opry. Mm-hmm. Did you feel any pressure at that moment that you weren't going to be able to lead a normal kid's life, that you, you had a lot riding on you? I didn't know what a normal kid's life was supposed to be. I really didn't. Yeah. Uh, I know that when when my cousins would come and family would come, uh, I was the center of attention. You know, little Ricky playing the mandolin, you know, with dad playing guitar, mom singing harmony and us doing trios and stuff like that. And like I said, I had, I had a cousin that uh, had been to Nashville with us, uh, but he had a terrible drinking problem. But sometimes he would come to our house and he'd be just stone cold sober, you know. And he was a great, great fiddler. Man, what a great fiddler that guy was. And, uh, and uh, you know, we would have those kinds of sessions at, at our house. And we moved here to Nashville. And, and when we came here, uh, Benny Martin met my dad. And, uh, you know, Benny Martin, the great fiddler that was with Flat and Scruggs all those years, did, the I think, some, some of the best... Uh, best records they ever did you know and uh, loved uh, loved his style of fiddling he was the original Stuart Duncan kind of thing you know I mean he was uh, you know Stuart has learned so much of, uh, and, and, and Jason Carter all you know loved Benny and of course we all do you know just the aggression uh, that he played with and the and the joy that he had when he played, you know, just it was all over him, you know. And um, but I do remember many times uh, that I, I kind of wish in my little boy heart that I could go just for an hour, you know, or even 30 minutes and, and just go and play with, uh, you know, play with with my cousins or play with uh, Benny Martin's kids or whoever yeah. was was at, at the house, you know, and uh but I never, I never got to. But there was another part of me that was glad I could stay there and play with Dad, you mm-hmm. know, and keep up with him, you yeah. know, and uh, and play things and sing things that Benny Martin could play. And and it really worked out. I mean, I think that's what I find so interesting about you. I mean, I find a lot of things interesting about you. But as we both know, I mean, the life of the child prodigy often doesn't end up turning out pretty good in adulthood. You uh-huh. know, you hear stories of kids burning out. Oh, yeah. Kids hating the thing mm-hmm. that they're the best at. Yeah. Kids you know, succumbing to uh, addiction and, and, and all kinds of different things. Do you have any perspective on why things might have turned out differently for you? That's well, a good question. My, uh, my mom and dad were very strong Christian people. They, they, they were strong believers. Um, my mother had like a fourth grade education um, what was her name Dorothy and um, she was a Thompson was her last name and um, 
So all all her brothers played music, and so gosh, when they came down, we would have uh, we would have a time. But um, she prayed a lot, and uh, so I think Mama's prayers were was one of the things that really kept kept my heart good and kept my motives in the right place. Uh, she she told me something one day that that is that you know it was just pretty revolutionary, you know. Um, because I was getting to an age where, you know, I was probably early early teenage years, and I'd gotten pretty good, you know, playing playing the mandolin. But but uh, but mom mom said, now I want you to know something. You were given a gift. This gift, you know, is very special. And always remember who gave you the gift. And always give it back to him, and uh, get, you know it was the Lord, the Lord Jesus. She said, and said uh, he gave you this gift, and you always ought to give him the honor for it. You know, and uh, she said, you know, you're as good as anybody, but just remember you're no better than anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, and and don't let this music, don't let your gift, don't don't get let your talent. Mm-hmm. Go to your head, mm-hmm. give you the big head, mm-hmm. and boy, I would have never ever done anything in front of my mom. I mean, I I tell people, you know, they they you know when I was big big country music star here in Nashville, and you know starting out, and and uh, people would come up and say, man, why you know I sent you a great song. I mean, you know, you said you. you I said, well, I I liked some of it, but I had to change some of the words. You know, like heartbroke. I changed some of the words. You know. Well, and uh, and Guy Clark said, why did you change a word? I said, well, because I wouldn't sit in front of my mom and sing that song. Our pride is a bitch and a bore when you're lonely. You know, same way with uh, with Larry Cordell's song, Highway 40 Blues. I wouldn't sung, sure could use a good cold beer. I wouldn't sing that in front of my mom. You know, I just... I honored her too much. I loved her too much to do that, you know. And and so that's those are the kinds of things I think that have kept my heart, um, you know, as pure as it can be. I mean, none of us are absolutely the purest of hearts. I mean, we we I know I, I strive to be and I want to be and and uh, but but I uh, you know we we're we're all we're all sinners. We we're still in this world, you know, and and uh, we know as believers that uh, that Christ paid for our sin, you know, and if we're a believer in him, we confess our sin to him. He forgives us, you know, and he's faithful to forgive us, the scripture says. So just knowing the word is a big, big deal for me. I mean, because if you don't know the word of God, then you're just lost as a duck. You're out there walking around, you know, you could step in a hole, you can go anywhere, you know, so uh, it's always good to, to have the word of God in your heart, in your thoughts, you know, and in your mind. My, my mom, my mom used to say to me uh, when we watch television, you know, and I, I might give someone a hard time on the news, and mom would say, "Well, sure, you know, she's she's a child of God, you know, she's one of God's children." Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, I mean, that you're right. That 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 made me look at every single human the exact same. You yeah. Know, that, that my entire life, and I, I I can only imagine like, I mean, we talked a little bit just then about how there were maybe moments where you thought, oh, you know, I wouldn't mind an hour to maybe go play soccer or, you know, hang out with the other kids. Yeah. So now I'm starting to understand that when you met Keith, Keith Whitley, all mm-hmm. of a sudden 
you meet a version of you. You meet someone who kind of gets you for the first mm-hmm. time. I can't imagine how that must have felt. Well, it felt, uh, God, there's somebody in this world, you know. And uh, <laughs> he and I met uh, my dad. Uh, I'd just been playing fiddle maybe six months and a new, a new four or five tunes, you know. And so this, uh, this high school principal in Easel, Kentucky, uh, called Dad, and um, he said, we're having a little fall carnival at the school, and uh, I'd like to get y'all to come play, you know, you, you and Ricky, and, and uh, bring Dorothy if she's able to come, and she, she wasn't able to get out and go. And, and uh, so anyway, we took off and went, I took my fiddle, so me and Dad was up singing, playing some stuff, you know, and um, um, and then I remember after I got off, after we got off, I looked and uh, and saw this this young boy uh, playing music with a couple of other older people, and uh, uh, come to find out it was Keith Whitley and and his brother Dwight. Dwight played banjo. Was he playing bluegrass? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they were playing bluegrass, and uh, and so. I either went down in the locker room to get my fiddle, or put my fiddle up or something. I don't know what it was, but there's nobody down there. Uh, and then Keith came down, you know, and it was like the two of us just met right there and bragging on each other, you know, and like the way you sang <laughs> and like the way, well, I like the way you sang, I like the way you play the fiddle and, you know, that kind of thing. And who do you like? Uh, well, I like the Stanley Brothers. Who do you like? Well, I like the Stanley Brothers, too. And so, well, do you know this one? And we started singing, you know. And um, from then, I mean, I invited him to my house the next weekend, you know, so he came over on Friday, him and Dwight came over and, and uh, I think my dad probably has that recording as well. The first, uh, the first time we ever uh, recorded at my house, you oh know, my God. and um, anyway, from that weekend on, we were together for the next two or three years, nearly every weekend, you know, um, Ralph, um, well, to answer your question, I, it really felt like a brother yeah. from another mother kind of thing. Um, I, and I'd go over to his house and hang out for a weekend. I'd go over on Friday and dad come get me on Sunday or something like that. You know, I'd stay a couple of days with him, you know, and, and, uh, but, uh, just having someone that loved the music like I did and he loved the kind of music that I liked. And, uh, that was a big deal. And, um, you know, good mom and dad, you know, yeah. and, and family. And also, um, that was a, it was a great, great thing to meet a, to meet a brother that, you know, uh, that you could sing with and someone that you could play with and people that, you know, knew, uh, you know, knew about you and knew what you, uh, were all about. I, I love the, you know, the very famous story about you and Keith, you know, you go with your dad down to a beer joint to see Ralph, Ralph, Ralph Stanley play with the Clinch Mountain Boys. And, you know, he's late, he's got a flat tire. Yep. You and Keith get up on stage, start singing Stanley Brothers songs. Mm-hmm. Where I get really in love with the story, which I, I, I had kind of heard the story, but I was only reminded of it when I was reading the book on the way down, is that I forgot that Ralph walks in mm-hmm. and he doesn't come to the stage at first. No. He sits at the bar. Do you see, are you on stage singing Ralph's part and do you see him come in the, the, the bar? I did. Oh, man. You know, <laughs> one of the most intriguing parts of this, that whole story is, yes, uh, Dad and, and Dwight came over you know brought me and keith uh to to see ralph but when the beer joint owner comes up to us and says 
do you guys have your instruments with you? Ralph's going to be late. We just heard, he just called us and said he's going to be late. Uh, would y'all get up and play some? How that guy knew that we played, we'd never played over there before. Um, Mom and Dad and I had sang in Louisa, which was right across the river in Kentucky there, uh, at the 4th of July kind of things, you know, that they would have there in Louisa. Uh, but how that guy knew that we could play, I'm just not sure. I mean, maybe he remembered me from fl the Flat Scruggs, you know, right, television show or something the like that. Scruggs and, show when you were a kid. And it was kind yeah. of known up there, you know, mm -hmm. in, in, in Louisa in eastern Kentucky. But anyway, we get up and play, and literally... The songs that we that we knew were Stanley Brothers songs. All I ever loved was you. You broke a heart to cry for you. And uh, and then Ralph comes walking in. A couple of the boys came in before Ralph, and they they head back to the dressing room, which was right beside the stage. One one door went into the dressing room and a little small stage and um so ralph didn't go to the dressing room he 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 sat on a bar stool and he sat there i remember he had a black leather coat on black pants and uh had had boots on and um and he sat there and had his banjo case you know right right with him his banjo in it and he is looking just watching and then he'd drop his head, and I thought, he hates this. He <laughs> hates this. I know I didn't sing that the way you did, Ralph. Sorry. But it was like, could you just move? I can still see you. You're you're blowing my mind. Would you please, you know? And uh, he must sit there for 10, 15 minutes, you know, and just listen to us sing. And he, he told me later, you know, years later, he said, when I walked in that beer joint, he said, I really thought that they were playing old Stanley Brothers songs on the jukebox. He said, I, that's how close it was for me. Because when I heard y'all singing, you know, and uh, of course that that meant a lot to me then, but it even means more now that, that Ralph is gone. But mm. um, so that was our, I had met. Ralph and Carter when I was about eight years old and had played with them uh, as the brothers, you know, uh, Ralph and Carter. Yeah, and Carter Stanley said brothers. you were going to be, you know, you were going to be better than Bill Monroe oh, one yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Bill Monroe, I have to take a back seat to you. And I thought, <laughs> uh, don't say these <laughs> blasphemous things, you know, you know, and, uh, but there was no one respected Mr. Monroe more than Carter did. Oh my goodness. I mean, the, yeah, how good he, are those recordings of the two of them? Hey, when they sang together on that? Yes. The greatest. Let's get down on your knees and pray. He's, he sings lead on that, right? Yeah. Get up. Get up. Get up. Get up. Get on your knees and pray. I remember hearing that in a basement in Newfoundland. Because I said I was, it was like hearing that Superman and Batman had gotten together. Oh yeah, <laughs> I know it. I know it. It's it's amazing, and uh, you know Ralph told me that Carter, you know, when Carter went with Bill for a little while, uh, that he wanted to hire Ralph Carter or uh, Bill did, and make it Bill Monroe and the Stanley Brothers. Wow. Yeah. I mean, what a force. Talk yeah. about, you know, Batman and Robin. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, and Superman. Superman. <laughs> and, uh, but man, it was, uh, I can imagine what that trio would have been like, you know. Yeah. But uh, 
it was uh, that was not meant to be, but um, just just the just the bloodline, you know, the DNA that I've been able to, you know, brush up against, embrace, hold, you know, be friends with, be family with. It's it's pretty uh, pretty astounding, you know, when I look back and and see uh, meeting Mr. Monroe at five years old, being on. Uh, or at six years old, then being on Flat and Scruggs show at seven, yeah. and then getting to play with Stanley Brothers when I was eight, nine years old. Um, you could have retired then, by the way. Yeah, I yeah. mean, uh, all the all the all the groups that I love so dearly, you yeah. know, uh, I got to play with them before I was ten years old, and but that's that's part of that's part of my story, and that's part of uh, uh, I think it's why you know people when they look at me and when they hear me talk and they hear the stories, I think they, they come to realize that I do carry, you know, that past, that forties, fifties, sixties time, you know? Um, I mean, you think about, you know, Carter being with route or Carter being with Monroe as probably, I think it was 50, maybe 51 or two. 53 something like that i've got i've got the dates at home some or probably in here on my phone <laughs> somewhere but i think i was born it was i mean like a year before i was born or something you know like mm-hmm. that and but and just to think that you know carter passed away you know in 66 mm-hmm. you know um i was 12 years old i remember hearing it on the radio i got up from the kitchen table went in and turned turned the radio up and started weeping. I started crying. I couldn't come, couldn't finish my dinner, you know. You're a young man. Yeah. You know? Yeah, too young. Yeah. Um, and then, and but then not only that, not only, like, not only did you do guest spots with these people, but then you end up playing with Ralph Stanley and the Clinch Mountain Boys, you and Keith. Can you imagine, how old were you? Like, you were a, a teenager. Imagine we were, letting your yeah. son that age <laughs> get on a bus with those guys, you know? know. Yeah, uh, Ralph, Ralph really befriended us, you know, um, and we had gone to meet Ralph, uh, to meet his, his wife, Jimmy. Mm-hmm. She was very much with child and, uh, and meet Ralph's mom, Miss Lucy. She must've been getting up. She was, then. she was yeah. up in her years. Yeah, yeah, she was. And, uh, we made a family, like a vacation out of it. I remember, uh, we went to Mount Mitchell state park on the way down. You know, my dad had always wanted to drive up to the tallest mountain east of the Mississippi River, you know. And uh, so we went up to Mount Mitchell. And I uh, remember we went, got a hotel and stayed the night and got up and had breakfast and went, uh, then went to the next day and, and uh, went to Ralph's, you know. And, uh, man, it was just, it was just so cool, you know. And, uh, but I think going to Ralph's house, meeting the family, and then, then Mom having Ralph and Curly and Roy Lee and Jack, uh, at our house, you know, that we bedded everybody down one night. We uh, they played in Olive Hill, I think, Kentucky, and uh, so we mom mom had supper made before they went down there, and then they had leftovers when they got home, and then everybody got you know got in bed, and and I had this coonhound pup, <laughs> and he barked way way too much, and I was scared. I was just so afraid that he was going to keep everybody awake, and so I was. 
I was hollering at him out of the house, you know, telling him to settle down and, and you know, be quiet, you know, like he could really understand what I was saying, you know. And uh, and Curly Ray mocked me all the next day, you know. He he laughed at me, but but uh, but for my mom to let me and Keith take off and go um, with them on the road, here's these seasoned men uh, that were just old road dogs, you know, and to let 15-year-old kids go go all the way to North Carolina with them, that was pretty amazing, you know. And that's one of the things I loved about, you know, once I came to Nashville and and uh, got, you know, got my kind of status as a, as a, a young country singer and started really, you know, getting on radio and television and everything like that, I always always tipped my hat and paid honor to Ralph and, uh, yeah. and, and Mr. Monroe. I was, I was always a little surprised. Um, I mean, did it ever come up? Because I, in the tr- and we, I don't want to take up all your time, so I want to talk a little bit just about JD, and then I want to talk a little bit about the uh, a question about the country years and a little bit about mm-hmm. now. Did it ever come up for you to be a bluegrass boy? Um, I saw Mr. Monroe. You know, I was, I was six when I met him in Martha, Kentucky. And uh, then I didn't see him again for about eight, nine years. When I was 15, me and Keith played a uh, bluegrass festival with Ralph up in uh, Columbus, Ohio, uh, Frontier Ranch. Had a bluegrass festival up there. Anyway, Mr. Monroe was there, and he, he had seen us do some shows with Ralph. He knew how I could sing. And and I haven't told a lot of people about this, you know, but... but he said, now, uh, if you ever leave Ralph, you know, it wasn't like I'm trying to get you right now or anything like that. He had respect for Ralph. And he said, uh, if you ever leave Ralph now and, you, and you're looking for, uh, for, a, for a job, he said, uh, uh, you'd make a fine bluegrass boy, you know. So I said, well, I appreciate that, Mr. Monroe. Thank you, you know. But I haven't told a lot of people that. Wow. You know, but that's really true. He did approach me. I, not approach, but like it with he the talked, sole intent, yeah, you yeah. know. But, but he let it be known that... Uh, if uh, if I left Ralph, that uh, you know I could oh, I could come work with him. You and know. nothing ever came of it. No. No. I I, I left Ralph and and then uh, you know went with, with the country gentleman was the next band mm. and then from the country gentleman to yeah. J D Crow and J D Crow to Boone Creek and Boone Creek that's, to Emmy Lou. But that's crazy, man. Like that, that, that that's wild, man. You would have yeah. you would have played fiddle, I guess. Maybe you know. I mean, I he may have wanted me to to sung lead with him, play play guitar. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, do you play guitar? Do you have a white hat? <laughs> <laughs> There's a story about him uh, trying to find a bass player last minute. You know, to go on the road with him, and and he, he was at Bell Grimes at his his old office over there on Dickerson Road, and and he had one phone in one hand. Uh, hello there. Uh, this is Bill Monroe. Uh, uh, do you uh, you play bass now, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, you have a you have a white hat. Uh, hello, uh, this is Bill Monroe. He's in another another phone now. He's still got this one on hold. Uh, do you uh, do you play the bass? Uh, do you have a white hat? Uh, you don't. Uh, okay, you know, hangs up. and just hangs up on that one. Uh, we're leaving at six o'clock. <laughs> These are the, the two other th- one. The two things necessary yeah. to be a bluegrass boy to be the bass player. Can you play bass? Yeah, and do you have a white do you hat? white do you have yeah, a white hat? White hat. That's right. Uh, so you you end up taking a break from music, then you you play with the country gentleman for a while. You play with JD Crow, and you play on what is considered by many to be one of the most influential, if not the most influential, bluegrass LP of all time. Certainly in this this generation. 
Okay, I just want to get in here for a second. I was so excited to talk to Ricky Skaggs that I didn't mention the album that we're about to talk about. So I want to let you know it's an album from 1975 called J.D. Crow and the New South. J.D. Crow, Bobby Sloan, Tony Rice, Jerry Douglas, and Ricky Skaggs, considered to be one of the greatest bluegrass LPs ever made, and also an incredibly influential bluegrass record where a lot of bands after this record came out tried to sound like this record. All right, here you go. I mean, there's no doubt about it. The music was was great. Yeah. Uh, singing with Tony and singing with JD, um, there was a sound that we had together that was very cool and very retro. What have they done to the old home place? It was bringing the old, the past forward and doing something kind of fresh with it, you know. Tony was such a trailblazer, guitar player, you know, um, and JD's banjo plan was, you know, he was like the, the love of every banjo player, you know, loved how he played. And, and uh, of course, Jerry then came along um, after we had recorded the record, you know, Jerry... Uh, I, I talked to JD about it before we left to go up to Washington D.C. and record the record, because I, I, I had worked with Jerry with the Country Gentleman, yeah, right. and I knew I knew what a good player that he was. He must have been a kid, hey? Yeah, he was. Yeah. You know, and uh, so I I mentioned it to JD, and he said, "Oh well, I don't, I'm not sure I want Dobro on this record," you know. And I said, well, "That's cool," and uh, so. You know, we'd, we'd sing some more and, you know, and summer wages or something like that, you know, or Canadian song, by the degree. way. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, and uh, Ian Tyson. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we and then sometimes Tony would chime in a little bit, you know, because he really liked Jerry playing a lot. And, uh, you know, J.D. said, well, well, maybe maybe one or two songs or something like that. Maybe, maybe you know. And so I called Jerry and just t- told him, come hang out, you know. So he'd come over there and, and just really hung with us, you know. And, well, it's time to do the, the song that J.D. thought would be good for Dobro, and that turned out good. Then uh, he played on another one, <laughs> and that was great. <laughs> played on another one. And so he ended up playing, I think, maybe seven or eight out of 12, maybe, songs on there. And uh, anyway... Um, but I think one of the things, I mean, like I said, musically, that was a great record. It was, it was, we cut it live to the oh, mo- for the most part. Like I mean, rhythmically, we, that we record, cut it. Yeah. yeah, we cut it real close to each other. We weren't all in sound booths and stuff. We cut it really close to each other, so we could literally hear. I mean, we had headphones on, I'm sure, but but we could feel everybody and hear everybody, you know, and. Um, um, and then we did vocals, you know, later. And if there was overdubs that I had to, had to do, or Tony had a guitar solo, like for Sally Gooden or something that he, that he did, uh, separate, you know, that we'd always do it after, after we played it. But, um, I think a big part of it is just that once something is over and you can't get it anymore, that's when everybody wants it. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, it was over. That sound, that sound was over and gone. I mean, even though JD kept on, uh, you know, Boone Creek started. Yeah. Tony went to work with David Grisman, went yeah. to Marin County and lived out there. And uh, 
But that sound of the New South, it was gone. You know, there's not going to be any more. It's like Elvis, you know. Uh, it's like Michael Jackson, you know, when he passed, his record sales went through the roof. Everybody, you know, everybody wanted it uh, because there's there's not going to be another Michael Jackson, you know. And and I can't, and I'm not saying that 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 JD didn't have good good a good band after Tony and I left because he did, and and he kept playing, and he had really good uh, you know guitar players, harmony singers, people playing with him. Um, but it wasn't me and Tony and JD and Jerry and Bobby. It wasn't, it wasn't us five. Mm. And there was, there was something that our personalities brought. There was something that our musical, um, abilities brought, um, just our singing style, just my hillbilliness and Tony's more refined, beautiful voice, you know, um, California, he just had a, a, a very distinctive, very unique voice, and I and I think, honestly, I th- I think he and I blended better together than me and me and Keith. I mean, there was when I would sing with Tony, our voices when when we would hit a high note together, his voice sounded more like mine that me- meshed together than. Of course, now here again, I mean, giving me and Keith a, a mulligan here. Uh, we were babies. Yeah, you know, we were yeah. young kids, yeah. uh, still learning, uh, tr- still learning to, to sing with each other. But uh, there was something about Tony's voice that uh, I just feel like had a blend and a and a uniqueness sound wise. And, and you listen to Skaggs and Rice record yeah. is even done later. That's done d- done after the the New South record. Talk about suffering here below, and let's keep a loving Jesus. Talk about suffering here below, and let's keep a following Jesus. Oh, can't you hear it, Mother? So some of it was was the mystique that it's gone and it's it's over, and and uh, but but I think you know there definitely was a, a quality of musicianship and and uh, and vocal uh, sound that uh, that was very very cool. Was there ever? Before Keith passed, and I'm sorry for your loss there, you, oh. know, you know, just the way you said he was, yeah. he was your brother, you know, and I, I feel that deeply mm-hmm. for you. Um, and I only talk about this as much as you want to, but were you guys ever hoping to reunite and play again? You know, we always did. Well, I say always. When, when me and Keith went with Ralph, we worked with him for about two and a half years off and on. We we went with him in the summer when I was 15. I would have turned 16 in July. So we played we played some bluegrass festivals. Actually, the first bluegrass festival uh, I played was in, uh, in Camp Springs, North Carolina. Ralph had had his first festival. Uh, that would have been 1970. The Carter Stanley Memorial. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And um, when we left Ralph... Um, we were always talking about putting a band together, Skaggs and Whitley. Yeah. And um, we'd even talked to Bill Emerson, the banjo player that had played with the, the country gentleman. Great banjo player. Yeah. yeah. And then he ended up going to the Navy, you know, and, and retiring, uh, retiring there. And, and, uh, but, but we, uh, you know, we really wanted to do, to do a band. And, uh, but every time we would get close we were even rehearsing, and we'd get close to doing something, 
Keith would always back out, you know. Why? Well, Keith wanted to be his own his own singer. Right. Your dad even kind of said that to you, uh-huh. right? He yeah. did. Yeah. He did. And I couldn't see it. I was blinded by it, you know. I was, it's not a big deal, you know, uh, but but I can understand why that he wanted to be. He, You know, he wanted to be Keith Whitley, you know, and uh, and was a little bit surprised. Well, I, I shouldn't say I was a little bit surprised. I think he loved Ralph enough that uh, when Roy Lee Sinners uh, was murdered, um, I remember we went to a restaurant and just the three of us sat and had had lunch, you know, uh, after the funeral. And uh, I remember Ralph asking Keith right then, you know, Keith, I'm really I'm going to need somebody that knows this music, you know, and it's going to be it's going to be tough to to fill Roy Lee's shoes. And I don't expect you to be Roy Lee, but but I think you could do this if you'll consider coming to work for me, you know, said I could sure use you, you know. And uh, Keith said, yeah, he would. And that that was probably five or six years that, that Keith served Ralph, after, you know, after that, mm. before he went with J.D. and before he came to, to D.C. and become a, you know, a Jimmy Goodrow and country store, him and uh, Jimmy Arnold and all that. And then and, becomes uh, a big country star. Yeah. Then comes to Nashville and becomes a, a country star. The smile on your face lets me When you guys were both country stars at the same time, would you ever run into each other and go like, "Holy cow, man!" Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. He uh, he was going to open um, for me. Um, well, actually, he did open for me uh, uh, in Knoxville one night, uh, and because uh, I've got a picture in my in my office up there um, of uh, me and him together um, in uh, in uh, in Knoxville at the same show and. And we we were dear friends. Uh, I just think we both knew, especially once I came to Nashville and and got you know once I mean once I once I I mean even with Boone Creek, I kind of had a little bit of hopes that that Keith might want to join 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 up with us it would, uh, with Jerry and um, so when I after I certainly after I had Boone Creek with Jerry and and. Um, and then went with Emmy Lou, you know. I just knew when I was with the country gentleman that, that I was not being utilized yeah. very much. I was, I played fiddle with them, and that was about it. You wanted you know? to sing too, right? Yeah, I yeah. really wanted to sing. I felt yeah. like, uh, you know, fifty percent of me was uh, just you know, like chop liver, yeah. you know. <laughs> and uh, so I didn't want to be in another place where I couldn't sing. And I knew if I went with Emmy Lou and Rodney was still in the band. That I, you know, no, no offense, no disrespect to Rodney, mm-hmm. uh, but I knew that there just wasn't a place for me there, you know. Um, and so she had asked me before Boone Creek, you know, got together, um, and I said, you know, I think I really want to know what it's like to have a band. You know, I want, I want to just taste this one time, and see about partners and a band and and all that. And I. Never again. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, That's what everybody tells me yeah, when they come on my no, show, says yeah. the exact same thing. Yeah. They sit down, they go, you get many bands in here? And I go, yeah, it's not going to work out. Yeah. I tell you. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, uh, but but when I came to Nashville and got my record deal, yeah. there was never no more thoughts about that, you know, because I knew, I knew Keith was uh, was with JD and, and he was enjoying that. And, uh, and they were doing a lot of country, 
you know, in that band, and I was cutting records with steel guitars and stuff. So then Keith came to Nashville and, and uh, you know, sung demos and stuff like that. You know, I think, uh, does Fort Worth ever cross your mind? Uh, uh, he sung that demo that they sent to George Strait, wow. you know. And I've heard Keith sing it, you know, uh, on a, on the demo, and he just kills it. And George just sung it just like him, you know. Mm. But um, but anyway, um, you know, he would call me and he'd say, "Hey, we're playing softball tonight. You want to come?" You know, and I said, "Oh crap, I'm leaving tonight." Mm. I'm like, "That's all right." And he said, "Call me." You know, call me next time. I said, call me up again, you know. And so then I'd call him. I'd say, hey, we're grilling steaks and stuff at the house. Can you and Lori come? Well, I just got home. I'm wore out. Let's let's take a rain check, you know. That's the way our lives was for about a year, you know. Um, and I hated it, you know. Now, when Jesse Keith was born, we we ran over there and, and, uh, and, and spent – Spent pretty much spent the day with Lori and Keith and and uh, and and of course like I said Jesse was a baby, and uh, but we talked Lord we laughed we cried we laughed so hard you know uh, just about Curly Ray and Ralph and Jack Cook and and all the fussing that Curly Ray and Jack would do you know uh, you know just crazy stuff and so we you know the last time I saw Keith alive. Um, Sharon was about eight, eight and a half months pregnant with Luke, mm -hmm. my youngest son, and who's now 30, you know. And um, so we were, I was sitting in the green room, and here he come. And he sat down beside me, and we start, just started talking and laughing and cutting up and having a big time and, and talking about Ralph because I told him I'd just seen him at a festival and seen, seen Curly and all. And, and uh, he said, boy, I, that was good old days, you know, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he, he said, well, how's Sharon? I said, well, I said, she is much with child. He said, I know. said, I saw her. And, uh, and he said, uh, he said uh, why y'all going to name him? You know, I, I said, well— I want to call him Luke, Lucas, Lucas Skaggs. He said, man, Luke Skaggs sounds like a shortstop. You know, <laughs> I said, I know it. I said, it's a great name on shortstop, Luke Skaggs. And uh, so anyway, about that time, I saw Lori walk down the hallway to go to the back, back of the, uh, to the backstage she was going to be on next. And she said, Keith, you know, like that. And Keith said, well, I got to go. Yeah. He said, uh, Sure, good seeing you, boy. You know, and we hugged and kissed each other on the cheek, and and that was that was the last time, you know. And uh, so, those are, you know, they're good times to remember, but those were tough times too. I bet so. Yeah. I, I can still, I can tell you, still think about them. Yeah, sure do. So I know, I know. I, I just want to a couple, just a couple more things. Yep. I know we want to get you into the studio. Um, you know, in Canada, I don't know if it's it made its way down here, but in Canada, we talk a lot about the lobster pot syndrome. Do you have to get any of that? Do you know what that is? It's when a lobster tries to get out of its pot, if it's boiling, the other lobsters grab it and pull it back in. Wow. And we say that because a lot of Canadians, when they move to the States, you know, all of a sudden uh -huh. the Canadians don't like them or they get resentful or they get uh -huh. jealous or something yeah. like that. And I guess I wondered when you became a big country star, a lot of the people who you were, who you had come up with, 
we're still, I want to be respectful about this. We're still playing bluegrass and we're probably still playing beer joints and, and mm-hmm. small festivals or something like that. Did you experience any of that? Any, any resentment or weirdness from the bluegrass community when you hit it big? Yeah, lots of lobsters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> lots of lobsters. Uh, sure did. I mean, uh, there was a lot of the diehards, you know, um, that just, you know, it was like the cardinal sin that I had committed, you know, leaving, leaving bluegrass. But see here, that this is the, the short-sightedness of the lobster, okay? As big as his tentacles are, he's still got little eyes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, that's the way I feel like that, that the bluegrass community, you know, many of the bluegrass community, especially in those days, were. They had really strong claws, big pinchers that could really hurt you. But they were so short-sighted, they had little eyes. And thank God, you know, that I had big eyes. And uh, I, I knew that I could play this music, I could, I could build my name up if I, if I was successful. And I was willing to try that, you know, when I first came to Nashville. So I got, I did get a record deal. I got to produce my myself, um, and the record started hitting. We started having number one country hits in the U.S. and Canada. I'm just a country boy. Sold, you know, had a lot of gold and platinum albums in Canada, you know, mm-hmm. as a result of, of, of uh, sales up there. And um, but, you know, Ralph, the the prophet from Smith Ridge, Virginia, you know, would tell them, "Listen, Rick will be back. He'll come back to this music one day. He loves it. His heart's in it. He's making a name for himself. But he'll come back someday to this music." It's exactly what I did. He was right. You know, when Mr. Monroe passed away, uh, it wasn't that was that's the signal. No, that's that's not what I was waiting for. Uh, You know, we none of us didn't we didn't think he he would ever die. (laughs) You know, it was one of those. You know, I can't believe it. No, wait a minute. You can't you can't die. You know, you can't play anymore either. You know, dumb bucket. You know, what are you talking about? He has he has to go, you know. But, you know, once he and I really reconciled the fact that me and Mr. Monroe, I'm talking about that he did not have to worry what was going to happen to his music, mm-hmm. that people like me and Vince and Allison and, and Marty and, and Patty and people like that, we love his music. We're going to talk about him. We're going to play and sing this music till our dying day. We'll, we'll always do this music. And, and I think, I think he really found peace in that knowing that he could go and that, uh, you know, cause I told him, I said, Mr. Monroe, your music is bigger than you are. It's bigger. It's bigger than you are. People hear this music and they don't know who started it. Mm-hmm. You know, they just love the music, but that's what you've done. I mean, that that's your success. You know, the, the music far outlives us, you know? And uh, so don't worry, you know, uh, that your music's going to die because it ain't, you know. Uh, and I thought about that, you know, thought about that scripture, lest a seed dies and falls into the ground, it abides alone. But when it dies and it does fall in the ground, it'll produce, you know, 30, 60, 100 fold, you know. 
And that's what's happened with bluegrass since his passing. How are you feeling about it? I mean, I don't want to be macabre or grim. You're 65 now. Like, are you optimistic about the future of bluegrass? I think so. I mean, you know, the the musical abilities are some of the highest I've ever heard in my life. I mean, Kentucky Thunder is a prime example. These boys that play play the music they are they're totally um it's probably the the most talented uh kentucky thunder band i've ever had you know um and so i know that generation of player is is uh and and they they want to learn the old stuff they can play a lot of the new stuff but they want to learn the old stuff and they're playing it learning it and I'm writing old sounding tunes and they're just hopping right in there with me, you know. And, and uh, so I love that. And uh, I think there's some young ones coming along. I saw uh, I saw Presley Barker and Carson Peters. I saw them doing a Skaggs and Rice thing here. <laughs> Talk about suffering here below and let's keep loving Jesus. Talk about suffering here below and let's keep following Jesus. Oh my God, it was so great! I couldn't believe it. You know, that's like when that's when you like when you and Keith were singing and Ralph walked in. Yeah, you must have scared them yeah. half to death. Well, they were. <laughs> I, I saw it on I saw it on YouTube. Okay, so uh, so they, they they didn't have to face if you're, me. If you're listening they, to this, no, he watched it. <laughs> they were being good. You know, I, they're 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 such good kids, and I've actually had them both on the Opry, which is kind of cool. You know, separate but but uh, really good. Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a joy to talk to you about all this stuff, and um, I just want to tell you that the Bluegrass Rules record changed my life. Oh, wow. That was a good record. That sure was. That was equally as important for me to come back and do that as, uh, as, as doing, you know, the Crow record, mm-hmm. you know. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it was the right time for the right audience and I had uh, I had a big name behind me at that time I mean people say that I you know especially the the, the diehards you know the the, the, lob, the lobsters mm-hmm. they uh, they said I left bluegrass music I took bluegrass music with me I didn't leave it you know you listen to my records You'll hear the mandolin, prominent. You'll hear the fiddle. You'll hear the banjo. Your number you one hear... hit was a Flatten Scruggs song. Yeah. 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 So, you know, um, just the fact that, uh, you know, that I was growing in popularity and, you know, but it afforded me the abilities to come back to the music with the name that I had and the recognition I had and the credibility that I had in country to be able to come back to the table of bluegrass and be who I am and what I'm doing. And, and I think I'm trying now more than, than anything to, to raise up young men and women, young girls and boys to play this music and, and respect elders, learn from the, from the fathers and the grandfathers because the music's out there. It's accessible. You can get it, you know, learn this stuff, get it in your mind, get it in your brain, in your heart. And then, and then play it the way you'd play it for your generation. Mm. Yeah. What, what, what do you feel when you're standing on the stage of the Opry and you sing a Bill Monroe song? Uh, just proud, you know, just thankful. Uh, so thankful to, 
you know, get to do this and thankful to, to uh, you know, have had all those years to be around Mr. Monroe and Ralph and Carter and, and uh, you know, Flat Scruggs. Uh, I know when we were at uh, uh, Gary and Randy Scruggs, they, uh, they asked if we would, uh, you know, the Whites and me would sing at Earl's you know, funeral and, and, uh, down to Ryman, that's where we had it. And, uh, and I said, Gary, just want to tell you something. You and, you and Randy just know how much of a role the Scruggs family played in my heart, my musical makeup. I said, uh, about 15 or 20 feet behind me, I was leaned up against the wall playing mandolin in 1961 and your dad walked by and heard me play and looked up with a big grin that your dad always had and looked at my dad and said, that boy's really good. Why don't you bring him down for an audition for our television show? And I said, "That's that." there it started, you know. And uh, we went down, did the audition, did the television show. I've seen it. I've seen and, it on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. And so I said, you all played a huge, your dad especially, you know, played a huge role in, in my my coming to prominence, you know, because I said, I can look back at it now and I can cite on a video what my life was like when I was seven years old. And, you're, and you, you are that for so many people now. Well... I hope so. I, I want to be, and I, I want to help people, and but not just musically. I mean, I want I want I want them to know Jesus. I really want them to know the Lord. You know, it's one thing. You know, we're all God's creation, that's for sure. But I think a child of God knows who his father is. He knows who his elder brother is, and his elder brother gave his life for us. You know. Uh, and that's what that's that's the only thing we're going to leave here with is knowing that 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 we've accepted Christ, that he is in us and 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 to take as many people with us as we can through our through our conversation, through our music, through the songs. Um, and that's that's life. That's uh, is just knowing that we're that we're uh, that his blood covered my sin and he paid a debt I could never pay you know and uh, you know when we did the mosaic record in here you know that record has been one of the most influential most powerful records that we've ever cut you know and uh, probably has the least sounding you know mountain bluegrassy kind of stuff on it uh, a little more Beatlesque in, yeah. in lots of ways with Gordon's playing you know Gordon Kennedy but um, but but that that record has been so powerful, you know, uh, to change people's hearts, you know, and and uh, just the the lyrics, the writing of the of the songs, and but um, you know that's 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 what makes me know that you know the music is a door opener for the main thing. The main thing is to let people know who who he is, and point people to him, not point people to myself, mm. you know. Be humble, be grateful, be thankful. That gets us in, but in, we we get into His presence through praise, through reading His Word, through prayer, meditation on His Word. You know, 
And that's when the intimacy happens, and that's when new songs start to happen. That's, you know, what's King David doing in heaven? I mean, you think about what he's doing, you know. He's got to still be writing songs. I, I still think that there's <laughs> songs yet for us to, to get, you know. And uh, I don't know, you know, I think he's still playing music, too. And, and I, I think uh, it's possible that we can hear that stuff. I know it sounds crazy to some people, but I don't mind being a fool for Christ. Mm. Yeah. Ricky, uh, what a joy it is to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for telling these stories, man. Oh, I appreciate it. And thanks for all the music, too. Thanks for coming down from Canada, eh? Lot, lot warmer here than it is up there, <laughs> I tell you that much. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Ricky. Yeah. All right, that's it for me and Ricky Skaggs. Um, yeah, the, the end of that podcast was something I simultaneously was anticipating um, and also wasn't anticipating. Uh, but you know what? I think that's, that's, I wanted to make sure that got included because that's a, that's a big part of our conversation. That's a big part of, um, how, how he relates to this music and how a lot of people relate to this music. And I'm really, really grateful to Ricky for making the time to talk to me about all this kind of stuff. I should also mention that if you're interested in going further into the story of Ricky Skaggs, even though we touched on a lot of stuff there, he has a book out called Kentucky Traveler, which is well worth your time if you're interested in this music. Uh, Next episode, we will be speaking to another living legend of this music, um, Alice Gerard. I spoke to her from her home in Durham, North Carolina, while there was a thunderstorm going on. Uh, I really love getting a chance to talk to Alice. It was my first interview I did for this. I was pretty pretty nervous about it, but we have a pretty frank talk about her her life with uh, Hazel Dickens. We talk about how she got into this music, her rejection of the music at the time, and sort of really being the building blocks for people who weren't of like the Opry and country music to get into bluegrass and old time music and, and what a pioneer she was, especially for women in, in this music. So I, I'm excited you get a chance to hear from Alice Gerard. Toy Heart is produced by me, Tom Power, and also by Stephanie Coleman. Our executive producer is Amy Reitnauer Jacobs uh, with help always from the entire BGS team, including Chris Jacobs, Justin Hiltner, Craig Shelburne, and all the amazing writers and contributors that make BGS the best source for roots, culture, redefined. You can discover more at thebluegrasssituation.com. Additional production help from Mike Laval. Our theme, Toy Heart by Bill Monroe, is performed by Chris Critter Eldridge and Kristen Andreasen. Darling, you toyed with a toy heart. I think I played your game right from the start. This toy heart. Don't forget to rate this podcast if you dug it. It helps us out a lot more than you might think. Uh, subscribe to it. Um, let your roots, bluegrass, American music friends know all about it. If you want to find us on Instagram, we're at Toy Heart Podcast. If you want to send us an email, we're at toyheartpodcast at gmail.com. Um, if you want to find me on Instagram, I'm at Tom Joe Power. And we will see you with Alice Gerard later on.